Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in. You will know we've got even more to cram in in our time together as a result of events happening almost as I speak. A significant cabinet reshuffle from Rishi Sunak. If it's okay with you, I will reflect on that very shortly. But before then, just a few notices for the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. Thanks all of you who came to the Bridport Book Festival event on um, Friday night. Uh, it was absolutely packed at their fantastic venue there. And it was great to see some of you afterwards who were. Uh, told me you listen to the podcast and are going to start emailing and joining our never-ending discussion on that front as well. And I look forward to seeing some of you uh, at the Derby Book Festival this coming Saturday. Also coming up, the Rock and Roll Politics live show at the Rope Tackle next Monday. This was the one postponed. This is the uh, Shoreham a brilliant uh, location because of the storms that then never were quite as intense as threatened. But uh, anyway, it's going on this Monday. And then the Rock and Roll Politics Christmas special at King's Place on December the 18th, where we will look back at a crazy year and dare to look ahead to the election year. And yeah, sorry about this, we've got lots of notices. All of you who subscribe to Patreon, First of all, thank you very much. And uh, the bonus for November. So much is going on. I have liaised with um, my uh, uh, gods at Podmasters. And we are arranging another live event for Patreon subscribers on November the 23rd. This is where we can get together with a degree of intimacy and make sense of it all. And if you want to take part, the link will be in the Patreon blurb, and you just need to sign up and then join us on November the 23rd. All the details on the Patreon site. And for those of you listening in the cooperative, subscribe to Patreon, and you will be able to join us and get loads of other bonuses as well. So a uh, pause in our series on uh, political rivalries, uh, as we go live to make sense of it all on November the 23rd. Phew, yeah, so a lot of notices, so much going on. Now, Sunak's reshuffle. If it's okay with all of you, the focus has been on David Cameron, uh, which is very interesting, and I promise you I'm going to come to him. But I want to reflect a bit on the fall of Braverman, which would have been the overwhelming story uh, if it hadn't been for the appointment of uh, Cameron, which incidentally has been billed as a total surprise. But I know I heard Cameron somewhere say if he were ever to come back, it would be as foreign secretary. I can't remember where I heard it because um, he doesn't give many interviews um, or where I read it, but somewhere he said that. Um, and uh, Apparently, it's been mediated by William Hague. Anyway, we'll come to Cameron in a minute. Uh, but without that appointment, it would have been the sacking of Braverman that would have been the central focus of this reshuffle. And it interests me, the fall of Braverman, because you'll, you'll have already read and heard quite a lot about the reshuffle. But as you know, in our time together, we delve deeper. And I want to look at 
the fate of prime ministers who move into number 10 at the end of a long period of uh, rule or rule from one leader or from a governing party. Roy Jenkins described them as tail end Charlies. Uh, He was referring to people like Jim Callaghan. He was saying that one of the reasons why Gordon Brown was so impatient to get the job from Blair is that he didn't want to be a tail-end Charlie. In the end, it was his fate to be a tail-end Charlie. And, And so it is with Sunak. And one of the things that seems to be almost an iron law of politics is when a prime minister comes in towards the end of a long period of another leader ruling or governing, there's trouble. A party is in a kind of troublesome state. And the leaders often struggle to deal with that. And in a way, Braverman is a much, much shallower version of something Callaghan had to face within his cabinet, which was uh, Tony Benn. Tony Benn, and I stress, a thousand times more interesting and substantial than Braverman. But he made Callaghan's life hellish in ways that does have echoes with what uh, Braverman did. So he, Tony Benn, almost as a matter of principle, didn't stick to cabinet responsibility and argued uh, that it was healthy for democracy for there to be internal disagreement openly expressed. And there was one famous occasion with Tony Benn. Imagine how this would have played out in the era of social media, where Tony Benn, who was a member also of Labour's ruling National Executive Committee, so he was a cabinet minister and member of the National Executive Committee, and on the National Executive Committee, Tony Benn voted against his own government's policy, uh, even though he was a member of the cabinet. And he reports it in his brilliant diaries, um, vivid diaries. And he, he sort of says there was a sort of, because he was such a polite person, he was always surprised when people got cross with him. And uh, Tony Benn reports in his diary, Jim Callahan summoned me to number 10, and he was red with fury. He says, you can't vote against government policy and stay in the cabinet, which he did. Now, Suelo Braverman did something similar in disobeying number 10 instructions to revise an article and one of many comments and actions that have caused Sunak mountains of trouble. But in the case of Tony Benn, Jim Callaghan decided to keep him in the cabinet. When I say decide, it implies a greater agency than these prime ministers tend to have. Callaghan leading a government with no majority in the House of Commons, in that sense, Sunak much more privileged, could not sack Tony Benn. He represented too significant a section of the Labour Party and would have caused far more trouble probably on the backbenches if he had been sacked. And it didn't really cross Tony Benn's mind to resign either. As I say, there were huge differences with Bravman. 
Ben was a substantial figure with a coherent set of ideas that interconnected about inter-party democracy and accountability and economic policies of the left that had been, to some extent anyway, thought through. Braverman is a kind of shallow populist, part of the kind of English nationalist wing of the Conservative Party, which Boris Johnson, in a slightly different way, also represented. I'll come on to the strands in the Tory party at the moment because they are important to identify in order to make sense of it all. Uh, But it's interesting that the issues around Braverman's departure weren't wholly different from some of Tony Benn's ideas about accountability, who is accountable to whom. There was, in her dispute with the Metropolitan Police, the essence of an interesting and important theme about accountability and who is responsible for what. When she called for the Metropolitan Police to ban the march and then was critical of the way the police treated some marches compared to other demonstrations and implying in a way that she, as the elected Home Secretary, should have greater powers to make these decisions. That is quite interesting terrain because there is no doubt that the elected government would get some responsibility for a march or a demo that went badly wrong uh, in terms of violence and all the rest of it. So she was partly on quite interesting terrain, let's say not that dissimilar from the arguments that Tony Benn was having with his tail end Charlie Prime Minister Callaghan. But her use of language, her lack of language, actually, uh, Tony Benn had a command of language which was mesmerizing. And the way she went about framing those arguments with stupid, provocative use of language and, and, and hate and all the rest of it was a shallow form of internal dissent that in the end Sunak broke away from and sacked her. Uh, it was a big call for him because he, in a way, is in a more vulnerable position than Callahan and some of the other tail end Charlies. Um, I'll come to Gordon Brown in a moment because he was in an interesting position too. Although Callahan had no overall majority, he had been elected by the Parliamentary Labour Party that was the uh, mechanism then that elected Labour leaders and in-government prime ministers. It was uh, different famously with Sunak. He didn't get to the party membership, which is meant to be the mechanism that elects Tory leaders. Uh, He became prime minister without that when Johnson and others pulled out of the mad leadership contest that followed the mad Truss era. So he leads at the end of a long, long, wild period of Tory rule without being endorsed by his uh, party formally in a leadership election. And of course, he hasn't won a general election, which is always another weakness with the tail end Charlies. So two things happen. Prime Minister's elected at the end of a long period of rule, are 
facing a party that is exhausted, unsure of itself, riven with division. Uh, That happened to Callaghan and Labour, Sunak now, and in a different way, Gordon Brown at the end of the long period of new Labour rule. Uh, Brown had won but in a leadership contest, but it was a bizarre one of his own choosing in which he fought himself. There was no other candidate. And Brown faced the dissent of the more extreme Blairites who pretty soon after he became prime minister tried to get rid of him. And there was this constant pressure on Brown that he might face another coup at any given moment. That was his management problem. Sunak has faced Braverman and what she represents as his management problem. Sunak is much the less experienced of these tail-end Charlies. Brown famously had been Labour's longest-serving chancellor and, of course, had been involved in endless internal battles since becoming a Labour MP in 1983. Remember Sunak, had only been chancellor for a short time, and that was the product of a bizarre sequence involving the sacking of his predecessor as chancellor, Javid, because Dominic Cummings didn't like him and like Sunak. Uh, Before that, he had been chief secretary to the treasury for uh, 10 minutes. It's not enough experience to deal with the mountainous challenges of running a country and a party, but that's what he's got to do and face. Uh, Callaghan was far, far more experienced. He'd been a Labour MP since 1945. And so when he faced his internal party issues, mainly, as I say, Tony Benn and what Tony Benn represented, he managed it with considerable skill, actually. Uh, There were no significant cabinet eruptions during uh, Callaghan's reign, no dramatic resignations, no dramatic sackings. It was the last era, really, of cabinet government. He let them all breathe and have their say, but tended to prevail. Uh, Gordon Brown had, in a way, a different avenue through which he moved in order to acquire an authority that had become so threatened by these attempted coups. And that was his response to the global crash of 2008. Uh, And that gave him a kind of authority. Now, in both cases, those prime ministers, those tail-end Charlies, lost uh, Callaghan to Thatcher in 79 by quite a big majority. Gordon Brown, of course, only just uh, lost. Cameron didn't get the overall majority. Many thought he would in 2010. Now, Sunak, in a way, faces bigger internal problems. And let's now look at whether the reshuffle addresses them. It is a cliché of commentary that I fear will be around at the moment. And you know what I feel about this term, the centre ground. I can hear some on the BBC saying this. The sacking of Braverman and the return of Cameron marks a move by Sunak to the centre ground and away from the right. This is an inaccurate way of viewing what has happened because of this. 
Cameron is, you know, to use that cliche, he might be a grown-up. Of course, he's a former prime minister and in that sense is experienced. But he is a figure of the right, as uh, we've discussed many times on this podcast. And in a way, there's a neat symmetry to his return, because Sunak is also a figure of the right. He is a self-declared fiscal conservative. So is Cameron. They are both Thatcherites. Uh, Cameron pursued in economic policy and in public service reform policies to the right of Margaret Thatcher's in the 1980s. And Sunak uh, looked on with approval. And in a way, we have come full circle with the return of Cameron, because if you want to understand Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, with his autumn statement coming up next week, look at Cameron and Osborne. They are products, really, of the Cameron and Osborne Tory party. So what you have in the Tory party is not a return to the centre ground via Cameron, but a kind of reiteration of Sunak's worshipping at the Thatcherite altar, as Cameron did from 2010 onwards with his policy of austerity. And by the way, I think you will need to get ready. We'll have a look at it when the time comes uh, to Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement, because I think the way he's going to play it is impose huge spending constraints in the period after the election on the assumption they will be so tight, Labour won't commit to them, and then they will be able to, the Tories, play the sort of Labour tax bombshell story. By the way, I think whatever the spending constraints, Labour will commit to them, but that's another issue we'll look at after the autumn statement. So the Thatcherites are back in the driving seat, as they were with the election of Sunak as Prime Minister. The divides in the Tory party, to make sense of it, are these. So you have people like Jeremy Hunt, Rishi Sunak, David Cameron, who uh, balance the book Thatcherites. You then have, as I mentioned earlier, the sort of English nationalist wing, which is incoherent in many ways, but is represented by the likes of Suella Braverman, Boris Johnson, and those of that ilk. Uh, The reason it's incoherent is on economic policy, Braverman would be a small state Tory, closer to Sunak, who she clearly loathes, and Johnson is a big spender. But that is the kind of place where you get a kind of English-British exceptionalism, Uh, Braverman, Johnson and co., even though Johnson in an earlier incarnation was pro-immigration and Braverman is against. And then you get the sort of Liz Truss wing of Reaganite Tories, tax cuts, uncosted, borrowing for tax cuts, because that in itself will trigger economic growth. And so you have um, a curious mix of internal differences, as I say, not all of them coherent, but all rooted on the right. Uh, This is a party having internal uh, dissension uh, from within the right. That sort of one-nation Tory tradition, personified, say, by John Major and Michael Heseltine, who saw a role for the state as a benevolent force, briefly revived by Theresa May via her advisor, Nick Timothy. That's really not represented any longer within these internal 
debates. They might become so uh, after the election when people like Nick Timothy will be in the House of Commons putting the case for what he called an interview, for me, the equivalent in certainly economic policy terms and public service terms and industrial strategy terms closer to Christian democracy. But you haven't got that within these internal debates now. Will it work? Um, I don't think it uh, will. Uh, it is illuminating in that Sunak has clearly decided, and by the way, it's a sign of how he is flailing around just looking for a move that gives him some hope of a narrowing of that poll lead, uh, because clearly his party conference strategy has failed and he knows it. Uh, that strategy where he said that um, he was the agent of change, uh, reneging on or turning away from the last 30 years, which uh, we know upset or offended Cameron. Uh, George Osborne has said as much. He saw Cameron the day after the speech and he was really offended by it. And so was Osborne because they were part of that 30 years. Well, Sunak has clearly given up on all of that and the um, uh, affectation that he can be the agent of change in bringing Cameron back, the personification of quite a lot of what has happened for a lot of those 20 years. Um, so he's given up on the agent of change message. Uh, it wasn't working. He got no bounce from the party conference whatsoever. He's moved. But whether turning to Cameron, who um, uh, did for a time affect a kind of, uh, well, he, he pretended to be this vote blue, go green modernizer. But by the end of his rule, uh, had been exposed as being not really like that at all. Remember him famously being heard in number 10, bemoaning the green crap being imposed on him by the uh, Liberal Democrats. And I say his response to the global financial crash of 2008 was to go very much back to 1980s style conservative policy. So whether the bringing back of this figure will reassure the so-called blue wall Tory voters who are liberal, pretty pro-European, I uh, wonder. And um, for sure, it suggests that Sunak has lost a huge amount of hope of keeping those red wall seats. Um, that coalition of December 2019 that uh, Johnson assembled via Brexit is crumbling. Sunak knows it's crumbling. Uh, Cameron is not the kind of figure, another wealthy Etonian to appeal to that red wall uh, vote. Johnson did because, you know, in the mad world that we are living in at the moment, he managed briefly to appear as if he was speaking for the people against the elites. Cameron's record in foreign policy is also deeply flawed. He lost that Syria vote. Now, whether it was ever right to contemplate the military action being proposed in that vote. Obama has always insisted ever since he was pleased the military action never took place. Uh, but nonetheless, Cameron wanted to do it. He wanted to be with Obama like Blair was with Bush uh, and lost a vote in the House of Commons. There is a lot of uh, concern about Cameron's misreading of China. And famously, he lost the Brexit uh, referendum. So, 
you know, there's a lot riding on this, and I wonder whether it will work for Sunak. Some are comparing it with going back to the kind of tail end Charlie theme. Um, Gordon Brown bringing back Peter Mandelson uh, to his cabinet. But with that, there was a very neat symmetry. Gordon Brown was having problems, as I say, with the extreme Blairites who were attempting to remove him and replace him with David Miliband. Uh, their greatest hero, apart from Tony Blair, was Peter Mandelson. And to see Peter Mandelson go into the cabinet, uh, basically as Gordon Brown's deputy, through these Blairites who were incidentally attempting coups with a kind of cack-handed amateurishness. Um, David Miliband also deeply unsure about whether he wanted to be a beneficiary of this coup or not. And of course, in the end, never made a move wisely, in my view. I don't think he would have won a leadership contest necessarily if he had deposed Gordon Brown. And it's not at all clear he would have deposed Gordon Brown. But anyway, all of that went out the window when Peter Mandelson came in. So you had the symmetry of someone seen as a devotee of Tony Blair's coming in to buttress Gordon Brown, who was facing challenges from all the kind of uh, more devoted Blairites in the House of Commons. And that really did stop the coups. There was, uh, there was a famous moment when there was thoughts that David Miliband might make a move after I think, really bad local election results. And Peter Mandelson was in with Gordon Brown, phoning up MPs, making sure they remained solid with uh, Gordon Brown. It, it, it was uh, a masterstroke in terms of buttressing an insecure prime minister. But in this case, Sunak faces most insurrectionary problems, not from the wing that... Cameron comes from. Say Cameron is a Thatcherite, but who believes in international law, believes in being civil to uh, European colleagues and others, and won't be looking for a fight left, right, and centre. And of course, was a Remainer, a Remainer who led to Brexit, but he was a Remainer. Um, Sunak's problems are with hardline Brexiteers who can't accept Brexit was an issue, but the way it has been executed. And with these kind of English nationalists who are not bothered about breaking international law, happy to withdraw from the European Convention on Human Rights and so on. So he hasn't buttressed his position with them in this reshuffle. Far from it, uh, by sacking Braverman, he will give them cause to howl. How many of them will howl? How many there are of them in that parliamentary party? We will find out in the next few days. Sunak, of course, is secure. They would not be mad enough to try and move him in the build-up to a general election. But it's not about that, really, for Sunak now. It's about whether... This changes the perception of him and his government. And my view is that it's too late to do this. Uh, as we've discussed on here before, John Major conveyed a sense of a new government after the fall of Thatcher right away. He put in Michael Heseltine to abolish the poll tax on day one. 
and the poll tax kind of symbolized the fall of Thatcher and the dying days of her regime. And it felt different right away. Sunak didn't do that. He brought back Braverman and appeased her and appeased to some extent Johnson didn't turn up for the vote on uh, whether he should be uh, suspended from the House of Commons uh, and so on. Um, And now the clock is ticking uh, towards the next general election. And anyway, is Cameron the personification of a new start when he has been a central figure in these last 13 years? So there we are. Uh, now, this is just the start of one hell of a week. So if it's okay with you, because it's a kind of um, busy day, and I want to get the podcast to Podmasters now, if that's all right, because uh, I've delayed recording it to kind of find out what's been happening with the reshuffle. Sorry about this, but I'm not going to read out questions. There's been some fantastic questions, but here's the thing. Because it's such a huge week, uh, we've got a potential vote on a ceasefire in the House of Commons on Wednesday evening. We've got um, further light will be shed on this reshuffle. Cameron will have to give an interview and so on. By the time you've heard this, perhaps he will have done, but I haven't heard him give a long interview yet. And and yeah, cleverly, he's issued a statement from the Home Office. He must be a bit bewildered by this. He was uh, thought to have been doing quite a good job as foreign secretary. He's been moved not because he did anything wrong, but this is the only job Cameron would come back for. And Sunak clearly wants him back. And isn't it interesting that in this era of leaders without great weighty experience, Sunak and Starmer, they have both turned to former leaders. Uh, Blair, a big influence now on Starmer, and Cameron too. I'm sure Sunak will try to use him on quite a few other issues as well. I think it shows as when Starmer started turning to Blair and accepted Blair's advice about who should be in his office and so on. That was after he lost the Hartlepool by-election and suffered a big drop in confidence, so he turned to a former leader. I think this shows again that Sunak is, for he, he looks quite confident still and energetic, and part of him still clearly enjoys being prime minister. But I can tell you, waking up to these terrible opinion poll ratings really undermines the confidence of any human being, actually and he has turned to a former leader. I think it is an unreliable road to take in both cases, actually. Starmer with Blair, and now Sunak with Cameron. Um, But when confidence falls, this is what tends to happen. So because there's so much more going on this week, you know, last week I said I might do a second one, but but we didn't. But I will pledge this week there will be a second one, which will include a lot of questions. There have been so many brilliant questions, a lot on the COVID inquiry, actually, very interesting, but lots of other things as well. And I've already started getting emails about this reshuffle and its implications. So if you're on Patreon, here's the pledge. Uh, There will be a second one 
this week on uh, uh, You'll Get It Late Thursday and everyone else uh, in the cooperative on Friday morning. I haven't even discussed this with Podmasters, but that's what will happen uh, one way or another. So thank you all for tolerating this. And as I say, uh, yeah, do subscribe to Patreon. Then we're all going to get together for a live Zoom uh, later this month. And we will all uh, get together. We need to, to make sense of this extraordinary week. We've got that verdict on the boats in Rwanda, which has quite a lot of political implications. Uh, let's say this potential vote on a ceasefire in uh, Gaza as well, which presents issues for Labour, shall we say. Okay, look, thank you so much. And thanks for the email. Sorry I haven't read any out this week, but I hope you understand, and I will do uh, later in the week. So get running, baking, whatever you're going to be doing, therapy, um, because we need to follow things very closely in the coming days and make sense of it all once again. Thanks so much. Do subscribe. Do tell your friends and family to subscribe and uh, tell them there's usually a kind of wider uh, discussion, but uh, not on this one. And if you could leave a review, that really helps. Thanks. Only if you like it. Thanks so much. See you soon. Bye. <laughs>